But Paul is often accused by some skeptics of this chapter of just flopping this chapter down in the middle of 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians and that really it doesn't belong here. And if there is any proof that that is not true, it's right here. Because Paul is directly dealing with problems in Corinth. We can't forget the context. Paul is not just talking to the whole church, which he is today. God's Word is true today, just as it was yesterday, and just as it will be tomorrow. But Paul was specifically speaking to the church in Corinth. And we can see that very clearly in this section of chapter 13. Because Paul is issuing a rebuke to the church at Corinth. What's he saying? I am going to show you a still more excellent way. I'm going to show you a better way because... You all have become come to the place where you're elevating certain gifts that should be functions of the church, but not hierarchies in the church. Oftentimes we look at one gift and say, oh, that, you know, that's on this tier. This is a first tier Christian here. And, you know, this, this gift is a second tier and over here is a third tier Christian. No! The spiritual gifts are given to the church, not to individuals. Yes, to individuals in the church, but in the church, not outside of the context of the church. And God gives to whom He wills, not based on your academic standing or your financial bank book. I mean, we've already talked about these things. God is given by His Holy Spirit, to whom He wills, for what purpose? To edify, to build up the church. And when we refuse to submit our will to God's will, when we say, well, God, I am a hand, but I I don't really like being a hand. I'd rather be a nose. A nose can't a nose can smell, but it can't touch. Can't feel, it can't grab. I don't know about you, I've never my nose has never been able to grab anything except, you know, dust and then you sneeze. A nose was not made to grab, and just the same, God has not called all of us to be one person or one to function in one way in the church. He's called each of us to function for His glory and most specifically for the edifying and building up of His church. This isn't something new. I don't think we missed these messages when I was growing up. I I hope we didn't because this is what a healthy body looks like. It's a body of believers who have come to the church not to be spectators, but to serve the Lord. And in doing so, we serve one another. If we are coming here with the expectation that God will use me today for the building up of the church, 
there will be a change. We may not see the gifts begin to flow immediately, but we will see a change in relationships. We'll see a growth in our body. And I do believe that God's Spirit will begin to move. That we won't be feeling ho-hum anymore. And it won't just be a feeling. The church in Corinth, they, they had forgotten that each and every member of the church body of Christ is necessary. You say, well, where do you get that? We'll get there. Don't worry. And they're devaluing people in the church. Well, they're the weaker. You know, they've got these weaker. No, what is Paul says we need those just as much. I kind of used that example when we were in chapter 12. You know, you're, when you're doing a bench press at the gym, it's actually not your chest muscle, the big muscle that fails first. It's actually your triceps. They're a little bitty muscle. But without the strength of the tricep, it doesn't matter how strong your chest is. It's just like if you go to jump, it's actually your calves, not your quads, that usually give out first. It's a smaller muscle. Your smaller muscles need to be stronger. It's always the weaker link that falls apart, not the strong link. So that's why we should be encouraging one another. We shouldn't be looking at somebody, oh, they're weak in this area, so we got to get away from them. No, we should be encouraging one another. So Paul begins this chapter. Why? Because he wants to expose the problem that Corinth has. They have, they have all the gifts flowing, but they're missing something. I think what they're missing is chapter 13. Why? Because in, in chapter 13, he begins showing them here in the first uh, three verses that even if they have the faith to move a mountain, but do not have love, they're nothing. There's a lack of love in the church in Corinth. When they come together, they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, and the others are going hungry and thirsty in their midst. Is that love? I mean, that's from this very book that Paul talks about these things. There are some falling asleep, dying, because of this lack of love in the church of Corinth. Paul is trying to show them that no matter how gifted they think they are, if they have love, don't have love, they're nothing. They have nothing. And it's without profit. It's useless. So love. People throw this word around like 
It's candy. If you asked 10 people on the street today what love was, you'd probably get 10 answers, and all of them would probably be wrong. Most of what our world describes as love is lust. Love is almost always described as a feeling alone, never a commitment to someone. I remember the day that I told Megan I loved her. I think she remembers that day. Well, I'm sure she does. Back then, I was a very poetic person. <laughs> she might even have the poem I wrote. But when we love someone, it's usually because we see something in them that is lovely. So, for Megan, it was her love for the Lord and how beautiful I thought she was and is. And the fact that she loved me back after rejecting me at first. But, you know, she realized that I was the best thing that had walked across that threshold. No. But God is different. And this is the love that we see here. You can't describe a man. Well, we'll see. You can't describe a mere man in this way. Because God loves what is ugly. God loves what is unlovely. He doesn't look at us. He loves from, it originates in Him. It doesn't originate in how lovely we are. We were created by Him, and yet we rejected Him and chose to live in sin. That's not pretty. God hates sin. He cannot even bear the presence of sin. Even Moses could not look on him because of his sinfulness. God didn't choose to love the world because we had some great value. He chose to love you and I because he wanted to. Whoa! He wanted to love his enemies? That is unnatural in the human term, but God is love, not some feeling. God is the essence of love. If you want to describe love, God is it. He is the definition of love. Remember John 3.16, it's not a Verse, I'm sure you all don't know this verse. It's never used. It says, God, For God so loved. This word so, that's translated so is God demonstrates His love. How? 
by sending his son to die for us. He gave his only son. What? To demonstrate his love. We were lost, hopeless, and he, in his own will and desire, before the foundation of the world, had a plan in which he would bring the world back to himself through his only son. The only way. And when God transforms us, Even though love doesn't originate in ourselves, God's love flows in us and it creates a life that has been transformed by the gracious love of Christ. And from this flows a love that loves the unlovely, loves the ugly because our character is being transformed to be like his we're no longer who we once were I don't know if you remember the old Gaither hymn well the Gaithers did it it's a hymn past but the love of God do you remember that hymn if you could with the oceans fill a quill. I don't know if you remember those lines. You could not write above in the sky above the love of God. I mean, that is love. It is without end. It has no beginning and no end. Why? Because it is of God's character to love. He is. And His being love. And as Christians, we are called to love. But this love will not happen unless we are in relationship with Him. It is not natural to love like God because when we chose to sin... That love became selfish and hateful. We were the opposite of love. In reality, this list here in 4 through 7 is the opposite of who we were before Christ transformed our hearts. We were impatient, we were unkind, we were jealous. We were braggarts and arrogant. We were acting in disorderly manner and and unbecomingly. We were seeking our own. We were easily provoked. We took account of every wrong suffered just so we could get them back. We rejoiced in unrighteousness. We hated the truth. We didn't bear all things. We didn't believe all things. We didn't hope all things. We didn't endure anything. That was us. 
But God is calling us in Christ to a new man. He is calling us to a lifestyle, a way of living, something that is transforming our lives, not just a prayer one Sunday and then boom, we're good. No, God has called us to be like Jesus. He has called us to fulfill the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's not natural. Especially if your neighbor has a dog that barks all night. No offense to those that I know who have Jack Russells, but Jack Russells love to bark. It's like their second nature. Well, that's their first nature, probably, behind eating. Oh, somewhere, I don't know which one is more preferable for those. But just little dogs, they just love to bark. Chihuahuas, I don't know anybody that has a chihuahua, so I can talk about those. Um, <laughs> but all they want to do is bark. Well, your neighbor has a chihuahua and they bark all night long. And God says, love your neighbor as yourself. You're like, oh, if my neighbor loved me, he would kill that chihuahua right now. But that's not what the Bible says. You're not to allow that neighbor's chihuahua to keep you from being (coughs) patient and kind and loving. So Paul here, he breaks this down into pairs. And we could describe love in two ways. Positively, love is. And negatively, love is not. So the first pair, he says, love is patient. And this idea, this patience here is enduring hurt without retaliation. And it made me think of the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18? He had a huge debt, an in-pay, unpayable debt. I mean, just imagine a trillion dollars. Like there was no way in his lifetime that he could have paid that debt. And he went to the man he owed the money to. He said, be patient with me. Be patient with me. I'll pay you all. And what did the, the debtee or... The man who had so much money invested in this man. What did he do? He forgave his debt. His patience was so great that he just forgave it. What does this guy do? He turns around and he goes to somebody that owes him like a week's wages. Or not a significant amount in comparison. And he also says... Same word here, same word that's used here is patient. He uses the same word. Be patient with me. I will pay you all. Exact same problem. But what's the difference? This man who has just been forgiven so very much turns around and says, 
Nope, I'm throwing you in jail until you pay me everything. And it got back to the, the guy that was owed trillions and he realized that the patience that he had been shown hadn't transformed that guy's life. Have you experienced patience? I have. I feel sometimes like Peter. So impulsive, ready to jump, take a step out of the boat, and then God, and then I begin to look around, realize, oh wait, what am I doing? But God is patient. He pulls me out. Or I'm quick to say, oh yeah, you're the Christ. But the moment you mention that you're going to die on the cross, oh wait, 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 that's not what I meant. Uh, that's not well, that's not the right interpretation, Jesus. You're you're going the wrong way. But God is so patient with us. He doesn't leave us alone. I mean, you can read the entire Old Testament and you see God's patience page after page after page, man and woman after man and woman. God's patience and long-suffering with people who are going after idols. Just read the book of Judges alone. I mean, it's like, as soon as one dies, they're all like, oh, let's go back to Baal. And then they get into captivity and bondage. Sounds like a lot of people today. And then they cry out to God, and God in His patient, long-suffering, He sends them a new leader who delivers them. And then they're all happy until he dies. And then they're like, oh no, we got to go by, find us a new God now. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's gentle. When love receives hurt or is treated in such a way that would generally return evil, what does it do? It returns evil with kindness. It isn't quick to return what it's been receiving. And then Paul begins to talk about negative things. Things that love is not. He says, love is not jealous. That is, it's not envious, which can cause strife. For example... In 3, 3 of 1 Corinthians, this is where it really, I'm sure the Corinthians were reading along, oh yeah, this is, oh no, he's coming after us. Why? Because they're jealous of one another, they're causing strife over who they're following. I'm of Apollo, I'm of Apollos, I'm of so-and-so. Why? Because they're jealous of one another. 
Instead, they should be asking, how can I serve the church for which Christ died? You see the difference? They're wanting an elevated position. Oh, if I'm, if I'm following Apollo, then I'll be up here. If I'm following Paul, okay, I'll be top tier Christian in this church. No. Instead, we should be asking, how can I serve the church for which Christ died? How can God's gifting and move of His Spirit in my life be used to serve Him and His church? Just look at the examples of jealousy just in the book of Acts. So in Acts 7, it says, verse 9, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. How many times do we see jealousy as the result of someone living righteously? Very often. If you don't believe me, here's Acts 17, 1 through 5. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, they didn't want the gospel to go out to the Greeks. Becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Wow, this sounds very similar to our day. Let's create a mob and burn the city down. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Paul is speaking truth. They hate the truth, and so they become jealous. Oh, How is it that he's so successful in bringing converts? We don't want him to take away from us. And then we we actually see a couple of good examples of jealousy. Because this word translated jealous can also mean zealous. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.2, speaking to this very same church, he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, so so that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin. Paul is so passionate about being sure that this church is presented to God as a pure bride. He loves the people of this church. Why? Because he loves Christ. Christ is his Lord and he wants the Lord to experience his bride, a pure bride. And so he is jealous for them. He's not going to just let them go and play around with idols and to go a-whoring themselves off like the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He is jealously 
guarding their purity. Or, prime example, Jesus, when He's cleansing the temple of those who are using the temple to gain financial wealth, And it's, it's a rare moment when we see Christ physically agitated. Right? He is agitated. Why? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. This word translated zeal is the same word translated jealous here. Jesus is jealous for the glory of His Father and the glory of the place where God has chosen at this point in time to set his name. And these men are taking it and dishonoring the name of God. And so Jesus had every right to in his zeal be angry at their wickedness and unrighteousness. So love is not only patient and kind, but it is not jealous. And love does not brag. Wow. I guess a lot of professional athletes, do they have a problem with love? Do you ever see their dances and their... Oh, I'm everything. Like they'll they'll act like they're Superman or whatever after they do what they're paid millions of dollars to do. You you think that's bragging? No, no, that's just part of the show, right? No, they're showing their pride. They're oh, I'm the greatest thing that ever walked the earth. Well, how do we designate a a great professional athlete? We call him a goat. Well, you know what that stands for, right? Greatest of all time. Apparently, they didn't hear about Christ. Because Christ is the greatest of all time. No questions asked. There is no rival. MJ, sorry. The greatest of all time already came. If you don't know who MJ is, Michael Jordan. Tom Brady, I'm sorry. The greatest of all time already walked the earth and he still lives. He didn't die. These, these athletes who think that there's something today will one day die and they will face their Creator. But Christ lived and died and He never bragged. He wasn't a bragger. Another word that you could translate this word brag is a windbag. It's not a very good compliment. You're such a windbag. You think that would that would go over well if somebody in the church called you a windbag? I hope not. We shouldn't be running around calling people windbags. But maybe God would direct us to if we are. There is an example though in in Acts Chapter 14 of Christians who are just doing what this talks about. 
In Acts 14, verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Now, this is an impossible task. This is a man who has never learned to walk. I mean, I can't imagine a single doctor saying that there is hope for this man. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well. So this man was so, he was listening intently. And as he listened, guess what? Faith arose. What does the word say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So this man who had never walked, has faith to walk? And Paul saw this and said with a loud voice in verse 10, Stand up upright on your feet. This man had never done it. How did he know? He'd seen it done, so he just did it. Has God ever asked you to do something that you'd never done? And you're like, Yeah, he has, at least me. And he leaped up and began to walk. His faith was so strong that he jumped. He didn't, he didn't like, oh, let's see if I can stand up. Okay, oh, 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 wow, this is a new phenomenon. I'm so high up here. No, he jumped, he leaped, and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Oh, wow, Paul and Barnabas, you have arrived. Everybody thinks you're gods. You could just walk around and get anything you want. I mean, they'll probably give you a mansion if you want. You know, this is, this reminds me of some pastors here in the United States who are seeking the mansions. Man, if, what would they have done in this situation? Oh, yes, I'm Zeus and I'm Hermes, right? But not Paul. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out in the crowd crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. This is the opposite Of a windbag. These men are turning what God has done to His glory. They have not lost sight of who made them.
They love the Lord with all their heart and because of that, they cannot take any of the glory. It's just Christ in us. It says in verse 18, even saying these things, even though after they explained everything, it says even saying these things, with difficulty they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. That was the power of God moving through them was so powerful that these Jews or these uh, Greeks, could they could barely keep them from trying to worship them. How many pastors would fail this test today? How many Christians, if empowered by God in this way, would fail this test? Well, anyone who isn't working in love would immediately fail because, wow, the feeling of, oh, I'm something now. I'm a, oh, oh, is that the, oh, sorry, Paul... Paul talks about arrogance next. Not arrogant. Not puffed up. That's what this word means. Not puffed up. I remember when we were kids, we would fish in Florida, and there was a fish called a, well, we called it a puffer fish. I don't know if that's the exact name. But when you catch it, it blows up, so you can't really take it off. It's kind of what I think of as a, someone who's puffed up. That or like you go to the gym, if you've ever been to a gym, and there's a guy in the mirror like like just trying to suck in the gut and bulge the muscles so they can take a selfie in the mirror. Okay, all y'all are looking at me like you've never seen this happen before. Apparently I'm the only one. Um, they're trying to make certain parts of their body look extra strong so that they can be like, oh, look at how big I am. I'm... I'm I'm the I'm it. But a braggart is always arrogant, right? So it's not it's not as though Paul is saying something new. He's he's just further defining what he means. And this is a direct rebuke, I believe, to the church at Corinth. He's zoning in, he's like, and their radar's going, Oh no, Paul, why would you bring up arrogance? Why? Because he's already addressed this issue in Corinth many times. In, in, verse, in chapter 4, 6-7 through seven, it says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you becomes, become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. He's talking in light of their arguing over who's, who's a better orator in the church, Apollo, Paul, so-and-so. He says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? The same braggart, arrogant, boast. So he's talking, you, you are trying to make yourself something in the church, of your own doing, but you receive what you have, 
So maybe that maybe they have a gift, a spiritual gift, and they're trying to use it to position themselves in such a way that they become a leader in the church when that's not their role. It's a selfish desire for power. Or later on in verse 18 and 19 of the same chapter 4. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Your arrogance, he's saying, will see the test. Because I am a servant of God and God will show if your arrogance is, if it's arrogance or power from the Lord. Because you're going to fail when I come. I'm, I'm coming. Don't worry about it. I'm going to come. So Paul is dealing with this. He's not done. 1 Corinthians 5. It's like every chapter he, he's pouring on dealing with their arrogance. And five is especially disheartening. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. This is verse one. An immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. They're flaunting their sin. Instead of repenting. So that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. He said, I have decided later on, I think it's verse 5 or 6, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? What's he saying? By allowing impurity in the church, remember, Paul is jealous to present a pure bride to Christ. And allowing your this man who is wicked to <coughs> remain and even rejoicing in his sin... By doing that, you are allowing his sin to leaven the whole of the church. And you think, well, man, Paul's already hit arrogance enough. No, actually he hasn't. If you look at chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. What's Paul's, what's going on here? Well, the church, he says, you know, they know that idols are worthless and not God's. Okay, that's, we know that. And so, so they can eat food offered to idols freely. They have that liberty. But there's a problem. There's some members of the church who are weak. Their consciences are still weak because they came out of that system of sacrificing food to idols, and so they can't eat. And so, what is Paul saying? You, you are trying to destroy your brother with your freedom. And that's later on 
in chapter 8, instead of using your knowledge as a means of loving your brother and realizing that they're weak in the flesh, they're still weak in their conscience, you're taking that to take your liberty as a stumbling block and that is arrogance, not love. Your knowledge has made you, oh, you don't need to worry about that because not that we don't teach the truth. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying is we need to be aware of what our brothers and sisters are dealing with so that we can live in a way that shows love, not that we have this great knowledge. Good knowledge, but the knowledge should not overcome our love for one another. So love is patient. It's kind. Not jealous. Does not brag. Is not arrogant. And it does not act unbecomingly or dishonorably. Or some translations say rude. I think that's a little underplayed. The only other time you see this in the New Testament, Paul is talking about a man with a virgin in First uh, Corinthians seven, and it seems that it's this idea of attracting the attention of a young woman in a dishonorable way, and then just ditching her, you know, refusing to marry her, showing your love to her, leading her to believe that you love her, and then. Leaving her out, out to dry. And so, how does this word apply here? Love doesn't seek to do dishonorable things. It does not seek to be unbecoming in its attitude and our, our, our actions to others. And coupled with this, it does not Seek its own. You know, when I got married, I thought I was unselfish. Laura, don't look look at me and laugh like that. (laughs) I thought I was like just so, such a good person, and I didn't realize how selfish I was until I got married. Megan knows better than me when she feels like I'm being selfish. But this idea is it doesn't seek its own what? Will, desire. It's not all about them. It isn't self-seeking. And one of these things, I had a professor that encouraged us not to procrastinate. You think, well, what does that have to do with self-seeking and seeking our own? God gives us time to do things. So when we decide to take the time that God has opened up for us to use to do things in the right time, what are we doing? We're setting ourselves up so that 
Let's say we're preparing for a paper or a job. At the last minute, we're like, no, I can't spend time with you. I can't do this. I can't do that. Because everything's about me. So I, I took the time that I had set aside to do God's will. Write that paper. I think about this a lot when I was in seminary. Write that paper or read that book or do whatever schoolwork I had to do. If I took that time and scrolled Facebook all day, or, which I mean, that would be depressing, or YouTube, or whatever else played around, that is selfish. And guess what? It doesn't just affect me, it affects everyone I love, my family, my friends, and even the church. And just like we talked about with those who become arrogant in their knowledge. It's all about them. Their knowledge is all about puffing themselves up, being so great. Instead of thinking, how does this affect my brother? How does this affect my wife, my husband, my children, my parents? Love does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. It is not enamored with self-gain, self-justification, and self-worth. I thought that was a good summation of that. So it, it does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. Isn't that what our culture says? Find yourself. Guess what? You're going to find an empty nothing. You need to find Jesus because when you find yourself, you're going to find worthless without Christ. You can look all over the world and you're still going to find sin. So finding ourselves is not the highest good. We can't be enamored or just wrapped up in Self-gain, self-justification, our own worth. It's all about the glory of God. When we have received the love we have received, we're not seeking our own, we're seeking the will of God. And because of that, we're not provoked. We're not quick-tempered, just waiting for an opportunity to explode at the slightest offense. I thought I was not easily provoked until I had children. You have a hard day at work, you come home, and they're on, you know, Mach 10 at provoking. And your wife says, I'm beyond provoked. I can't deal with this anymore. And all it takes is one, and you're off firecrackers, I mean, uh, thunder over Louisville at your house, for those of you who know what that is. You know, fireworks. You're just hoping the neighbors can't hear them because you want want them to know that you're a nice Christian family. 
And, and because we're not easy, easily provoked, because we're not waiting for opportunities to hurt one another, It's a lot of times because we're not taking account of a wrong suffered. Or, I have translated it, it does not take evil into account. That's a little bit more literal. Does that mean that we ignore evil? No, we'll get to that in the next one. But it means that I don't keep a private file of personal grievances that can be consulted ooh, and nursed whenever there is a possibility of some new slight. This is not my words. I know it sounded very good, but D.A. Carson actually penned those words. I'll say it again because I think it's a really good point. It doesn't keep a private file of personal grievances that can be consulted and nursed whenever there is a possibility of some new slight. Have you met someone like this? I have. That they're just waiting. Okay, I better write that down. And they, they may not literally, but you can see them mentally writing down when you say something. So that they can remember to remember that. Do you know how to tell if you're doing this? When you talk about someone, do you only talk about the things they ever did to you? It's a pretty good idea to know. If all you can think about someone is all the evil things they did, you have a file, but it's not private. It, we could take private. It's just a file of personal grievances. It may be public. For some people, I think it is public. They want everybody to know what someone has done to them. This word account is, is kind of an accounting term. It's, I don't know if you've ever heard of like these mob bosses, but they all had a ledger. And in each ledger they would keep track of who owed them bribes and whatever to, to protect their business. And so if you didn't pay that, guess what? They'd show up and say, look, you can either pay or lose a... Lose a a limb, or whatever, maybe even a life. Eventually, you're going to pay some way, whether with life or limb. And this is the, the idea that you're not taking and making a ledger of every debt owed, every evil received that needs to see vengeance. Why, why would that be the case for someone who loves like God? Because we know that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We don't have to hold a grudge anymore because God will take care of it. And honestly, we can forgive. We don't have to live in constant anger and frustration. But just in case we're, we're thinking, well, Caleb's saying we, we don't have to deal with evil. no. And Paul is saying that too. He says, right after this, he says, doesn't take account of wrong suffered, but does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Just because we don't take account and create ledgers and personal files to, to, to remember evil, doesn't mean that we run around doing whatever we want. 
Because Paul puts these two this together with, but rejoices with the truth. It does not delight in unrighteousness. It's, it's the same idea, rejoicing. Take joy. It makes me think, what is it that entertains us? What are we putting before our eyes? I mean, all you got to do is scroll any of the streaming video services, Netflix, Amazon, you name them. And there's a lot there to entertain us that is unrighteous. Actually, I would, I would beg to, to say that 99% of what is on those services is unrighteous. That doesn't mean, I mean, I use one and we found we have to wade through some stuff. We've had to turn some off. But this should put a test on our heart. Okay, what am, I, what am I rejoicing in? What is it that entertains me? What do I delight in? Is it righteousness? Do I love to see when somebody who is unrighteous succeeds? Do I want, or do I rejoice in truth? It's amazing. It is incredible. Just flipping through TV channels, we don't have one at our house, thankfully. I mean, who would want to watch the news today anymore? Because there's no truth coming out of those mouths. Maybe one here or there. But how much our... The television industry is embracing this LGBTQ agenda. I mean, I've heard that the majority of all shows now have somebody that identifies as one of those letters or one of the other whatevers. And what are we putting before our eyes? Are we entertained by, we're like, well, that's no big deal. You think your kids are going to think that when they're 20 and they're continually being fed this, this stuff and they're like, well, mom and dad didn't turn it off when they saw that. Yeah, they may not be making out, but there's it, it tries to normalize sin. That's not truth. Why are we rejoicing in that? They want you to rejoice in sin, to love it. Because if you love sin with them, then no one will tell them the truth. And that is definitely not love. If we aren't rejoicing in unrighteousness, then we're rejoicing in truth, which means, what, what do you do when you rejoice? You proclaim something. You're telling others what you love. So this is the end of 
you know, Paul puts these two together. And then in verse 7, he says, love is, or love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This word translated all things is can be translated always. And I think in this, this case, I think that's a better translation. So we could say, love always endures. Love always believes. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. I've translated these a little bit different just because I think it gets to the point that he's making. So the first one, love all bears all things, or love always endures. The NEB says there is nothing love cannot face. Difficulty, trial, persecution, it, there's nothing that it cannot face. Always believes. It's not cynical, constantly pessimistic about the world. We don't have to run around, oh, the world is... We're not all Eeyore, those of you who know. You know how Eeyore's, the world is terrible, the, the world's going to end tomorrow. Yeah, the world is ending, but guess what? We know the end. We should be the most hopeful people in the midst of persecution than anyone else. Amen. Right? We are believers. We're not cynical because we trust God. And we know that He keeps His Word. Sorry, I'm getting a little excited because I, I see so many Christians on social media and in person who are depressed. I'm thinking, did you not read the Bible? Do you not know that Jesus said there will be trouble in this world? But fear not, I am with you. We have a promise. We should believe it. Always hopes. This really ties in. Why do we hope? Because we trust wholly in God and know that He will keep His word. We cannot have hope if we don't believe. It's impossible. And Paul kind of goes back to always or bears all things, or as I've translated, always endures. Here, and he says at the end, endures all things, or always perseveres. It's tenacious. This love, it is tenacious. It never gives up. Why? Because it's hoping in the Lord. And that is why it doesn't give up. Because it has experienced the love of God. So, now y'all just need to go out and live like this. Don't look at me and laugh. You mean you, you can't do this on your own? This isn't natural for you? It's, I mean, ask Megan. I can attest to the innovations that I thought I had. had did. But that this is I'm such, you have to do this. Sometimes it's presented, oh, you, if you do this, then your will be great. 
Well, yeah, kind of, but the problem is you can't do this on your own. Because this is describing a man. One man. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only name that we can put here that has perfectly filled this. We could say Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not jealous. Jesus does not brag and is not arrogant. Jesus does not act unbecomingly. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not provoked. Jesus does not take into account a wrong suffered. Jesus does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The question is, can we put our name there? Not in our own strength. Only in Christ. You say, well, it's so easy for you to say that Jesus personifies it. Really? Well, let's, let's just read a few passages quick. I know I'm going a little long today, but I mean, it's a message on love. I mean, everybody in the America wants to hear a message on love. Maybe not this kind of love, but um, I mean, this, this should be exciting. So, patient. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, it may seem like God is moving slowly, that the Lord isn't answering your question quite, or your desires quite as quickly as you want, but He's doing it slowly because He does not want us to perish. He loves us. So He is doing it with patience. Kind. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. It's Christ. Does not brag. There's three examples in the book of Matthew alone. In Matthew 8, 4, it said, Jesus said to him, to a man he had just healed of leprosy, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. What? What's wrong with you, Jesus? You need to get a big church, build a mega church, and just have them all come in to you. You need to make the whole of Israel know that you're here. And right after Peter proclaims that Christ, Jesus is the Christ, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 20. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. What? That seems so counter. Intuitive. Like, what are we doing? In verse Matthew 17, 9, they had just gone up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They're coming down the mountain and it says, And Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. What? Jesus had a purpose, and He knew that bragging about His Greatness was not the way. 
He loved them and he knew that he had to die for them. Jesus did not seek his own. In Luke twenty two forty two, 42, it says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus wasn't concerned about his own will. He was concerned about doing the will of his Father. In John 4, 3, 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. His food, that, that's what He lived on and breathed to do the will of God, His Father. In John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of Him who sent me. He is our prime example of selfless love. In John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If that's not enough to prove that Christ was not self-seeking, but because of His love for us and love for the Father... He gave His life as a ransom for us. Yes. does not take evil into account. Remember what He said on the cross? About those who were inflicting what is commonly thought of as the most painful way to die. And honestly to us, What does it say? The wrath of God was poured out upon Him. What wrath? The wrath that we deserved. The death that we deserved. We deserve to die on that cross. So what did He say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He didn't take it into account. So our conclusion today... We've made it. Love is the central and irreplaceable characteristic of the Christian life. That's what Paul's getting at. If we do not have love, we are not Christians. Well, how can you say such a thing? Because Jesus said, You are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, 35. That's how we will know. You are my disciples. People will know of your, because of your love for one another. And if, we're not, if we don't love one another, do you think they're going to ask us why we have hope? Why we love one another? Because, as I've said, I would not have picked you to love. No offense. But... We all have differences. We all came from completely different backgrounds. But what is it? Our love for God, our desire to know Him intimately, is what has brought us together. So I want to end with a few questions. I'm going to apply them to me, but ask yourself, is my life...
characterized by this kind of love. I kind of intimated this other question last week, but if love was a crime, would I be found guilty of passionately loving God and my neighbor? Could you be indicted for loving God and your neighbor? Is my life one of passionate existence due to a transformational work of God, or is it a passionless and dead one? Just because love is not necessarily a feeling does not mean we live a ho-hum Christian life. Our life should be filled with a passion for God. A passion to see the lost saved. A passion to see one another built up in the Lord. Finally, can my name be substituted for love here in 1 Corinthians 13? If not, we need the Lord to fill us afresh. Because that love that is described here is a description of God Himself. And if He is not living in and through us, we cannot love like this. It is impossible. Next time you hear someone say, well, if you just love like 1 Corinthians 13, you need to respond, how do I do that? Just ask, get, just, just rattle their cage a little bit. See, see if, if they realize that Paul's point is not that we in our own strength love, but in the power of Christ who is in us, we love like Him. The more we surrender our will to the Lord, the more He can love through us. It's not always easy to love. Especially when somebody hurts us, they gossip about us, they treat us despitefully. I struggle with that. When somebody tries to dishonor you by saying that you said something you didn't say. Have you ever had that happen? I have. Twisting your words or trying to interpret what you said in a way that's not right. This love is not easy. But God didn't call us to an easy Christian life. He called us to a life of surrender to Him. And when we live in this love and the gifts begin to flow, we will see a healthy body that is functioning the way God meant it to. Not trying to see who's better, but seeking to be fit in like living stones, working together, each joint supplying what God has given. I pray that's your desire just it is, as it is mine. Let's pray. 
Father God, we cannot love like this. We need your spirit to fill us afresh. We need your presence in our life to encourage us to love like Christ. To strengthen us, to give us the ability even to do this. Lord, give us patience and kindness. Help us not to be jealous, not to be braggarts and arrogant, not to act in unbecoming ways, Lord. Help us to seek one another's good in the glory of God. Help us not to be easily provoked and take account of all that has been done wrong to us. Lord, let us always endure. Let us always believe, hope, and persevere, Lord. We thank You for Your grace and mercy. Let us rejoice in righteousness and not in unrighteousness. We thank You for the work You're doing in our hearts, in our lives, in this church, and we pray, Lord, that you would finish the work that you've started. Go with us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.